Uh, Father, would you use your word to enliven our hearts, show us that you're real and powerful, give us deep joy and gratitude uh, for Christ Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, it is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters, and there's a, there's a common story and experience that we've all known and walked through in life, uh, both in our relationships with one another and with God. It's a comeback story. Our movies, books, and sports, we enjoy these kinds of stories, whether it's a comeback in a marriage The Patriots coming back from a 28-3 deficit to win the Super Bowl, or Frodo rising from the depths of Mordor in the Lord of the Rings, there is something in us that just appreciates a story of someone making it when the odds were stacked against them. And it's not just exciting, Uh, it tells us as viewers, as readers, as watchers, it tells us That wherever we are, there is hope for a comeback for us as well. I mean, if the Patriots can do it, why can't the Vikings? At least that's that's my hope. You see, the the southern nation, Judah, in the book of Joel that we've been covering, it, it was no different. And let me remind you just a little bit of their story. So going back to the book of Exodus, before Judah and Israel were split into two nations, God saved his covenant people from Pharaoh. Now, you can go back and read the account. They weren't saved out of Egypt because they were good people, good, moral, religious people. No, no. In fact, God says that they were just as bad as Egypt, just as sinful. God saved them and delivered them out of Egypt because he had made a promise to them to be their God, for them to be his children. It was out of sheer grace and love that he did this. So not long after that, God gives them a set of laws to follow. He ratifies uh, ratifies a promised relationship with them called the Old Covenant. If they followed God faithfully, he would bless them. And if they turned on him, they would suffer. So in Moses, uh, in his writings, Deuteronomy 28 through 30, he lays out what would happen in either case. And in those chapters, we read of the negative consequences of their unfaithfulness to God. The land will be sick, burned, and desolate. Children and foreigners will ask, what happened here? And it will be told that God in his anger brought consequence, darkness, and judgment for their wicked ways. But in chapter 30, Moses would say that a return to God, a comeback, if you will, would bring blessing and joy. Well, that's quite the warning. And many years would pass and we come to Joel chapters 1 and 2 that we've been in the last few weeks. And we've come to find out in these chapters that the Jewish people didn't follow what Moses had warned them of. Because as we come to Joel 1 and 2, what do we see? The land has been scorched. Locusts have destroyed everything. God's army of grasshoppers have come to judge God's people for their unfaithfulness. And not only that, as we covered last week, a future day of the Lord, a future judgment will come as well on these religious people and the world as a whole. Uh, Our main idea this morning is simply this. Faithful followers of Christ turn to him again, afresh. It's not a one-time thing. And the dynamic of Judah's need for a comeback, it's different than ours here this morning. 
In the sense that their loyalty and their performance, Judas, it dictated how God would deal with them. But that's not how God deals with those under the new covenant as Christians today. The arrival of Jesus, the deliverance he provides, the new promised relationship he establishes by his perfect work on our behalf, it assures us that our lives, God's dealing with us, his favor and love toward us, it is never out of condemnation. However, we do see with Judah's comeback story and in our passage this morning that there is some overlap and some connectedness that we share with them. Joel chapter 2 and this change in relationship that God offers, it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. We, this morning, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus, you are the recipient of what Judah longed for. So there's much we will consider. So please read with me in Joel chapter 2. We're going to read verses 12 through 17. And I believe we'll have it on the screen as well. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God. Well, this is God's word, and in the midst of considering a change in relationship, considering that faithful followers of Christ turn to him again, we see in this passage first the very character of God. And this is directly from verses 12 through 14. One of the most important things that you can do as you read the scriptures is to ask one very simple question. I imagine in a room like this, if we, in our most honest moments, we would all say that we struggle to read the Bible at times. We struggle to understand it. We struggle to know where to read and how to read and, and what to pull from it. But one simple question we should always ask is, what do I see of God in this passage? Fundamentally, God has provided his word to us, not simply so that we would have information about the past or even future events. This isn't the matrix where you just download information and now you know Kung Fu. God, rather, has given you his word so that you would know him. A specific and special revelation so that we would know him. All your Bible reading is for the purpose of knowing who he is, seeing his beauty, and loving and following him all your days. So taking that very simple, 
basic yet profound Bible study method, we look at our opening verses and we consider what we see of him in his character. And I am very grateful for this small word that starts verse 12. Yet. Yes, Judah, you have spent years in wickedness. You are religious hypocrites. Your hearts are far off. You have adopted the world's religion of self. You've turned from my words and commands. You have found yourself in a place that you never thought you would be. Yet. Yet their story is not over. The army of locusts I've sent to destroy you. The judgment I brought on you. The coming future day of the Lord. It's not the complete picture of who I am or how I will deal with you, the Lord is saying. So, return to me. Not mechanically, not academically, but genuinely. Fast, weep, mourn. I'm more concerned, verse 13, with your heart being torn rather than what you're wearing. And perhaps you are here this morning. And your first reaction to this, this call to return to God, come back to me. Yes, you've been in sin, yet return. And your reaction might be what theirs was. God, on what basis will you receive me back? I've done too much. I've spent so long away from you. My evil, especially my secret evil that no one can see, it goes deep. How do I know you will take me back? And that's a fair question. Why would God take Judah back after all they've done? God has already punished them. God has just warned them of a future dark and gloomy day. What might reassure these people? Look again at the description of God's character in verse 13. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. I want to hone in for our time this morning, especially on this word, steadfast love, for a moment. It's actually one of the most important words in the Old Testament. The verse as a whole likely is a reference or a quote in part of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Let me read that. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So in Exodus, on a mountain, God renews a covenant with Moses back in Exodus 34 and the Jewish people. It's a covenant, it's a, a promised relationship that's built upon, established in, and dependent upon, did you hear it? The steadfast love of God. This is not some general concept of love that the world may think of. And we, we do that, we throw out love. I love Barbie dolls. That's not a personal confession. That's just what someone might say. I, I love this food. I, I love my home. I, I love this song. That's not the kind of love he's referencing. 
but rather the steadfast love of God throughout the scriptures is the constant shorthand reference to a special, specific, covenant-keeping, promise-keeping love that God has for his people. The steadfast love. So, Joel 2. On what basis should Judah return to God? How do they know that God is approachable? How do they know that God is truly welcoming them back? Because he's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He never turns from his covenant children. He never gives up on them. He he may discipline them. He may send an army of circumstance their way. He may hold them accountable for their actions. He may providentially bring bitterness and difficulty and, and he is abounding in his promises. In his love and commitment to his people. So who's not to say, Joel says in verse 14, that God in his love wouldn't relent wouldn't withhold what they deserve. That he would turn from sending judgment and he'd actually bring blessing and healing upon their life. My friends, that was true for Judah and it's true for us today. The character of God has not changed one bit since Joel 2 was penned. God's love, not in some vague country song kind of way, his steadfast love, His promise and covenant to those who trust him is unchangeable, eternal, and always welcoming a comeback story. Our Heavenly Father is like the Father in Jesus' parable, the ready and waiting parent who receives his wayward children back. Judah, they looked out at a wasteland, at their life. They looked at all their unfaithful ways and all their unfaithful years. They felt the weight of their personal and corporate sin. And Joel is given a word from God that says, it's not too late. Even now there is time. Even now there is an opportunity to turn back to the God that you once loved, Joel says. And it's very possible That this is exactly the word that you and I need today in Christ. The merciful, gracious, and abounding steadfast love is most clearly displayed in the gospel of Christ. As we read in Exodus and as we've seen in Joel 1 and 2 over the last few weeks, God does not allow the guilty to go unpunished. He is just, fair, and uncompromising in his integrity. So in his kindness, he sent his son So that both justice and mercy would be true at the same time. The punishment and justice of sin fell upon Jesus in our place. So that mercy would be extended to you and I. That is the gospel. That's the gospel message. So broadly speaking, there's only two groups of people here this morning at Lakewood. And we're in desperate need of the same thing. You may be here considering the claims of Christianity. You want to know. We don't drink Kool-Aid. I don't want to be tricked. I don't want to go into a blindfolded. I want to know. Does Jesus change anything? 
And perhaps you've spent a whole life turning from God. And you wonder. You wonder if God would receive you. You're here wondering if it's too late for a comeback. Or you are here and you are a faithful follower of Christ. Perhaps for years. And you're a faithful follower who looks back with shame and regret. Who sees the army of circumstance that has come our way because of our poor choices and the brokenness of this world. And and, and we ask, is it too late for me? Is it too late for me to have a comeback? To feel a a vitality and a freshness in the Christian life that I, I can only remember from years ago? Is it too late? No. No. It is not too late. The character of God is such that it is never too late. As long as you have breath in your lungs... As the sun rises on a new day, you and I have an opportunity to turn, to repent, and to return to God with all our heart. Each of us here need to turn to God in a fresh way. And when we do, he will receive us as we cling to Jesus and his gospel. Can I just share that that is such a rich promise for me personally. Because it's not just years like Judah that I look back with regret. Maybe it's this weekend. Maybe it's been a rough week. Maybe there's a dryness of spirit. Oh, is it too late? No. No, the character of God. The character of God is one in which the steadfast love of God, his promised love towards his people, it never ends. It's not too late. But we don't just see the character of God. We see action on the part of the people of God. And this is directly in verses 15 through 17 in our passage. And there's always some kind of cooperation of sorts between God and his people. We don't simply sit around, but we're called to action. More specifically here in our passage, Jude is called off the heels of who God is in his very character. They're called to respond. So, Blow the trumpet in verse 15. And the trumpet in earlier in Joel that we've covered, a, a, a trumpet would sound because judgment and doom is on the way. But here in our passage, it's a trumpet that signals a call to gather, to fast, to assemble, and corporately confess and pray. But look again at these verses. Who is called to gather? Like who specifically? Who assembles? Verse 16, we see elders, children, infants, those in the middle of wedding plans. And verse 17, the priests, the vocational ministers of Judah. So in short, everyone, no matter who you are, where you are, what you're doing, come. Come and join in the community of God's people. Come in a community trusting in God's character and his covenant community love towards them. Come and worship is the call. But I can't help notice in these verses that children and infants are included in the mix. Surely it would be wise of the nation of Judah to include them. Why? 
Well, these children are reaping the consequences of their parents and grandparents and, and their corporate sin. And these children are now invited to see those same adults turn and find their way back into a relationship with God. These children, Judah's children, they likely watched the adults in their life and the community around them worship false idols. They watched and they saw older generations give themselves to the worship of self more than God. They picked up, these kids did, that the fact that the adults around them were religious hypocrites. And the kids, in turn, probably followed suit. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So how critical was it that now children and infants, if they really did this, how critical would it be that children and infants saw a real, genuine change of heart, posture, and life toward God and the older people before them? So much of faithfully following God, it isn't taught It's caught. Judah, they would tell their children, don't do what we did. Parents, you ever say that? I'm embarrassed to tell stories of myself to my children. Uh, Yeah, stories of myself to my children. Just as saying, don't do what I did, kids. Don't do it. And Judah did the same. Don't chase your preferences. Don't run after empty things that won't satisfy. But what, what would they say positively? Do, do pursue God because real delight and joy is found in him. That's what Judah would say to their children. And Judah could tell their children that until they were blue in the face. But consistent, clever, even compelling words are not enough. They needed to see their parents live it. The entire community of Judah, even if they didn't have kids, they were the example and the influence of a generation coming up. So Joel says, bring the kids and the infants. Let them learn from an early age that they are part of the community too. Let them learn and watch what integrity to God looks like. Let them see that they themselves, they themselves, kids, you yourselves are broken, sinful, and needing of a restoration and your own personal comeback. Let us model to them what we hope their life will look like. Is it any different today, brothers and sisters? Listen, we we live in a context and a culture that constantly sees children as an inconvenience. Kids and infants, our world thinks, interrupts our plans. The plans that we have for our money, our career, our time, and even how we look. Kids, just so you know, we were so pretty before you came along. And the church should rightly push against the idea of kids being an inconvenience. However, I wonder if we have adopted more of the culture than we realize. And I maybe wouldn't wonder, but I'd be so bold to say, as we have adopted the culture as it relates to kids. Here in Joel 2, children and infants are not seen as an inconvenience, but a critical piece to the family of God. And you can bet in that assembly that Joel calls for, there were crying infants, squirmy teenagers, I mean toddlers, 
and a host of not just young moms and dads, but an entire community coming around them, warmly receiving them, diligently serving them, because they were not just part of God's community or that community, but by God's grace, they would become one day followers of God themselves, and they would be the next generation of leaders. Lakewood, children are not an interruption to our plans as a church. And we could pay lip service in saying that all day, but do our, do our feet, do, do the actions of our life and ministry display that? So parents, just by way of reminder, your little ones, they don't interrupt prayer time or Bible studies or hospitality or Sunday services. As a body, we should be coming around parents, teaching little ones, discipling them, holding them when mom and dad need a break. Squawks in Sunday service, I interpret as amens. And us giving up of our time to serve and mentor or learning how to pray through a home Bible study. You know what's real sanctification? Parents, invite someone over to your home, have a Bible study, have fellowship, try to pray as little ones are screaming, running down the stairs, and asking for a snack. It's all part of the relational community that we're committed to as a local church. Joel 2 is the reminder we may need that all the people assemble. And woven in between the lines of this reality is the very human, the very messy, the very real dynamic of refusing to believe that bringing kids, teens, and infants interferes in any way. It doesn't. Healthy communities, faithful churches are convinced That the assembly of Joel and the inclusion of young ones is not a mistake, but the ministry that we've all been called to. Now, there's more I want to say about the people of God and our action, but I'm going to tie it into this last point here. As we consider Judah's change in relationship, this comeback story to following and honoring God, we see lastly the glory of God. Joel's words to Judah in expressing God's gracious and fair character, in calling them to assemble as a community, bringing the little ones, putting wedding plans on hold, we see in verse 17 that a prayer is given. Led by the vocational leaders, these priests, we read this in verse 17. Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Surely this prayer connects us back to verses 12 and 13. God wants his people to turn from their unfaithfulness, their hatred of him, and their love of self. He wants them to fast and to weep, to mourn, and to have their hearts torn with remorse and repentance. The prayer of verse 17, O Lord, spare your people. It's a cry and a petition for God to not bring the judgment that they deserve. The judgment that Joel has just told them about in the beginning of chapter 2. And it's not simply just to spare them from some future judgment that's out there someday. It's a prayer to be spared from the destruction and the brokenness and the life that they're currently experiencing. So it'd be something like, oh God, something. Something has to change. 
Because they, like us, would wake up and they would be reminded of the dysfunctionality of their life and they would pray, God, help me. Things can't stay the same. This has to change. I need help. Protect me. Bring relief. Bring peace. Bring joy. And sometimes the sweetest prayers are just two words. Help me. There is a healthy desperation to the Christian life that says, God, I can't. I need you. I've gone my own way. I'm reaping the consequences for my choices. I turn to you. Help. And I want you to know this morning that if you are in need of a new relationship with God, he wants you to cry out to him. He wants you to come to the end of yourself. Verses 13 and 14, in his very character, I remind you, is grace, mercy, and covenant commitment and love that you have found nowhere else and in no one else. You've looked. And some of you gray heads who've been around a minute or two, you can attest to this better than all of us. We have gone looking for joy and satisfaction that can't be found anywhere but Christ. But the prayer is not ultimately about Judah. Do you notice that? What if I told you that our prayers, the, praise, the, the prayers that you say in a Sunday service, the, the, prayer, the prayer that you maybe say before a, a Sunday lunch, or the prayers that you say before you go to bed, what if I told you that those prayers aren't actually about you at all? One of the dangers of our reading of the scriptures in an American 21st century context is that we are fish who don't know we're wet. You and I swim in the waters of a world that builds everything about us. We are constantly asking, seeking, and leveraging the things of this world to work for us. Our Christianity included. Surely, we benefit in mighty and amazing ways when we follow Jesus. When we follow Jesus. That, that is true. It's true. But do you think that your faith, your baptism, your gifts, your life, and, and all the rest, do you think those things are actually about you? We are far too important in our own minds. And God in his kindness gives us this passage and this verse to wrestle with us because a close inspection of the prayer of verse 17 that these priests utter, it reveals that yes, there was a call for sparing and protecting, but ultimately, more than that, it is a prayer for God's name to be honored, revered, and celebrated. So what would make God's name in verse 17 what would make his name and reputation to be a byword, a curse word? What would make him to be doubted? Well, if he was proved to be unfaithful to his promises. The doctrinal absoluteness of the scriptures says that God in his very nature is a covenant-keeping, steadfast-loving, bringing to fruition everything he said kind of Lord. Starting with Abraham and reestablished through Moses. Funneled through the kingship of David, God has stated that he will choose a people, he will care for them, establish them, make a great name of them, and ultimately one day through Christ, 
bring blessing and restoration to the world. The prayer of Joel 2.17 is critical to the entire gospel message. So the prayer could be, and it essentially is, God, spare your people because it is through your people that the Messiah will come and your name will be made great. God, you said you'd sustain us forever and here we are on the brink and if you don't save us, the world around us will dismiss your reality, your existence and your power. Prove to them by saving us that you are the God who provides, forgives and extends steadfast love to a thousand generations. God, display your character and promises to the world. That's the prayer. Of verse 17. God's glory and not our own. Joel plainly told these Jewish people, these people of Judah, that they're coming back to God, their relationship with Him, they're assembling and they're praying, they're seeking change in their life. It ultimately, fundamentally, at its core, wasn't about them, it was about God's honor and glory. They were being invited into the grand story of God's redemptive purposes in human history. And we are too. And I hope that you have room for that in your theology today. Their story and our story, we are simply spokes on the wheel of the gospel going forward. Jesus is the center of life, all life, our life. And as we are connected to him, the wheel of the gospel, it turns. And we do, say tr- we do see true change in our hearts, community, and the world around us. But it's not change for the sake of change. It's to the end that the name of Jesus would be preeminent and that we would worship him. Here, here's how one pastor contributes to this idea. He says this, this is a radical God-centeredness that is is intellectually and emotionally foreign, it seems, to much of the contemporary Christian church. The instincts of many of today's preachers and churchgoers seems to go the other direction, to treat our life on earth as the great central value. And the honor of God is subservient to that. If God does not serve our comforts here, we posture, he is unworthy. This is a great sorrow and weakness in the church and in her mission. Here at Lakewood, we refuse to fall into that trap. We are joyfully committed to being shaped by the kind of biblical living and prayers that we read in the scriptures like Joel 2.17. The great goal of the Christian life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let me read one more short passage here. Quote, When Paul calls the gospel the gospel of the glory of Christ... He means not only that all these achievements of his suffering reveal the glory of Christ, but also that they are all leading to this ultimate goal. And here's the ultimate goal. 
God's blood-bought people enjoying and reflecting the glory of God in Christ as their supreme treasure. The providence of God in sending his son as a suffering substitute for sinners accomplishes everything necessary to bring his people into his presence with everlasting, soul-satisfying praises of the glory of his grace. God gets the glory of praise. We get the pleasure of praising. The glory of God's grace and the gladness of our souls are consummated together in this eternal praise. We have been created and given the lives that we have. Yes, your life. Your specific, unique life. With your relationships, your unique temperament and personality. The life that you have. We've been given in order to praise his great name and work. It's about God's glory and not our own. That's the call of the Christian life. Have you sought at times to disconnect your life from God's grand design for you? Well, if you're living for your own glory and your own preferences, and you have. And I have, unintentionally, I I think at times. It's not as if I wake up and I say, well, forget God's glory. I'm living for my own today. I I don't say that. But the actions of my life and our life reveal that. A disconnect. Have you rejected his character, that steadfast love, that graciousness? Have you been hesitant to return to him because you think you're not good enough? Have you refused to act and serve in community? Have you lived for your own glory? I have great news for you. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, there is grace for you in the gospel of Christ. Your comeback story can start today because faithful followers of Christ turn to him again. Is it too late? No, didn't you hear? Didn't you see in Joel? Oh, it's not too late. And by way of application, as we close here, can I just encourage you with a few things? Joel 2, this whole idea of treasuring God's character, taking action and praying and assembling, living for his glory and not ours, it has the tendency, when you hear things like this, it has the tendency for you and I to go out this week, you know, tomorrow's Monday, right? Tomorrow we go out and we live the life that God's given us and the tendency of our heart is just to say, I got to try harder. I got to be more moral. God is not calling you to moral living. He's not calling you to be a good person. He's calling you to be a new person. That's one thing that separates us from Judah. Under the old covenant, there was a sense in which, Judah, hey, you need to change. You need to be different. So pull yourself up by the bootstraps and follow God's law. And Judah and us, we say, we can't. I'm unable. You can give me principles and laws all day long. I can memorize Joel 2. And I can't change. I don't know how to come back. 
I don't know how to turn to him. And quite frankly, sometimes I don't want to. Here's the great promise for you and I. The new covenant reality of the gospel of Christ, and we'll see this later in Joel. The Spirit of God enables us, equips us, changes us. Joel 2 is not a reminder for you to be good and try harder. Joel 2 is a reminder to cling to the work of Christ on your behalf and allow Him to change you. If you need a comeback, cling to Christ. Because God has called all of us to fundamentally see our stories in all of human history this way. We've been created uniquely, specifically. And like Adam and Eve, we've all experienced something of a fall, something of a turning away. Like Judah, something of a dryness, something of a rebellion. And God, in this kindness, redeemed us. It's a very cute Christian word to say. He bought us out. He purchased us. He pulled us out of the pit. He rescued us in his work on the cross of Christ. And the final end of all these things, this future day of the Lord, is a restoration. Where our lives and our hearts and our souls will be made whole. And we will spend eternity upon eternity upon eternity. Not relishing in our glory or in our works, but standing before the face of Christ saying, Worthy is the Lamb. Glorious is the one who changed me. Beautiful is the one that helped me in my comeback. How magnificent is the one who pulled me from the depths in June of 2023 when I was dry. Would you just take a moment where you're seated and ask yourself where you need a comeback? Where have you been dry? Where have you turned? Is it too late? No. Pray with me. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We come in his righteousness. And God, we praise you for your character and work. Despite Judah's unfaithfulness, despite ours at times, yet, yet, even now, God, you offer invitation to us to turn afresh to Jesus. Would you help us? God, you tell us in your word that you are just and kind and gracious to forgive when we confess. Uh, So, God, we confess. We confess a, a turning from you just as Judah did. And we confess the work of Christ on our behalf. We confess that because of the Spirit of God that resides in us, we will turn to him afresh. God, would we do it today? We pray this in his name. Amen.